Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk to the man who is leading in national polling and the odds-on favorite to become the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And joining us on The Roy Green Show is Conservative Party of Canada leader Pierre Polyev, who is in Alberta for the United Conservative Party annual general meeting. Mr. Polyev, things are looking pretty good for you. How do you feel? Well, it's good, but I take nothing for granted. My focus is to keep pushing my message of axing the tax to bring home lower prices of powerful paychecks through lower income tax, of clearing away the bureaucracy to build more homes people can afford. So far, Canadians are reacting well with that common sense message, but I'm not letting up. You're not eating an apple while you're talking to me, are you? <laughs> I wish I were. I, I was uh, eating one Why? in the South Okanagan. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to be eating an apple when you're talking to me? <laughs> I'm not the other guy. Hey, listen, apples are good any day, no matter who you're with. And uh, it's become my new favorite food. That's a nice save, huh? But uh, somebody may score on the rebound. So let's talk about this uh, axe the tax. Let's talk about the carbon tax. Clearly, Canadians are fed up. And it was the last few days, particularly, when Mr. Trudeau put his foot in it by deciding that he would try to win back votes he appears to be losing in Atlantic Canada by uh, exempting heating oil from uh, the carbon tax and then telling the rest of Canada, forget about it. Uh, you're not going to happen to you, but one of his ministers, the minister responsible for um, uh, not urban affairs, for uh, what, what's that? Other, what's that other word? Country Rural affairs, development, or something like That's that. That's it. Yeah. When she said, "If you want to have that kind of uh, that kind of uh, support, then vote in more liberals," they have done themselves immeasurable damage. And then on Monday. Mr. Singh and his NDP are going to be voting for, with you uh, on the non-binding vote, uh, motion in Parliament to do away with uh, the carbon tax on anything that has to do with heating um, your home. Big victories for you and uh, bad news from Mr. Trudeau. Too bad it's non-binding. How do you see this developing? Very badly for Mr. Trudeau, but unfortunately in the short term, very badly for everyone else. He is planning to quadruple that tax from the current level to 61 cents a liter. And that quadrupling will apply to home heat. Unless you're one of those 3% who are getting a pause from the pain, uh, Mr. Trudeau admitted that the tax is hurting and it was hurting apparently worse where his poll numbers have dropped the most. So this is the environmental science. Remember, uh, by paying a higher tax, we'll save the, the planet, says Trudeau, except uh, in places where his poll numbers have dropped there, the tax is not needed to save the, the planet. So that's political science. My common sense plan will axe the tax for all Canadians. But in the meantime, as long as he's in power, I'm saying, let's make a deal. Let's give the same pause on all home heating everywhere until Canadians go to the polls when we can have a carbon tax election. People can choose between his plan to quadruple the tax and my plan to axe the tax. 
What do you do, though, about the money that the carbon tax is, in fact, collecting for the federal government? That money will be gone. Or is it your sense that what more money, uh, more money the Canadians earn in their own pockets to go out and, uh, and spend it appropriately, intelligently, reasonably, and thereby generate more revenue, more tax revenue from conventional sources for the government? The latter. We see the parliamentary budget officer indicates that in the long run, the carbon tax destroys so much economic activity that the federal government actually loses money from it. Uh, And so by getting rid of the tax, you actually boost the income tax revenue of people who have higher paychecks and are more prosperous. So sometimes taxes destroy so much economic opportunity and wealth that they end up hurting both the taxpayer and the government, and that this is one of those cases. Parliamentary Budget Officer told us on this program that the people who are going to be most hurt by the carbon tax and the clean fuel standard are the people who can least afford it, the people who are not doing well financially in Canada, and yet the government is intent on pushing it through. Can I ask you about a couple of other things? The matter in this country, by the way, according to Ipsos polling, 40% of Canadians have trouble sleeping at night due to financial stress. Um, what do you what do you make of Alberta looking to exit the Canada pension plan? And now that the federal finance minister has agreed to provide a dollar figure, Alberta might expect to see carved out of the current CPP funds. You weren't in favor of that initially, are you now? I'm encouraging Albertans to stay in the CPP, but I understand why they're fighting to get some of their money back. Justin Trudeau has attacked the prairie and western resource economy with an unconstitutional law, C-69. He's brought in an unfair and unevenly applied carbon tax that uh, inordinately punishes Albertans. And he looks for every way and every day to punish western Canadians. It's understandable that Danielle Smith is trying to fight for a better deal for her people. Uh, My common sense plan will axe the tax. It will repeal the anti-energy law C-69 and allow the resource provinces to produce more. And it will give a fair deal to every single province. And I think that will help Albertans to believe again that they can remain part of whether it's the CPP or any other federal institution. Uh, That's what fairness does. It brings us all together. What do you do with immigration numbers? Uh, StatScan is telling us that uh, significant numbers of jobs were created in this country, but the immigration numbers completely dwarfed the job numbers that were created, and immigration has an impact on on jobs. It has an impact on housing. It has an impact on on social programs, has an impact on health care. What do you do about immigration? Well, we get back to the common sense system that worked for 150 years. We never really had any serious controversy in Canada about our immigration system before Justin Trudeau. Uh, Conservatives, liberals, east, west, north, south, we all agreed that we needed a steady, reasonable number of immigrants coming in to fill jobs and unite families. Uh, And we benefited. One One of those immigrants is my wife. Uh, who's uh, from Venezuela. But Justin Trudeau has totally delinked the numbers from the available housing, health care, and jobs. When I'm prime minister, I will bring in a common sense formula that links the number of immigrants to the number of homes, 
jobs and healthcare services that are available. Okay, let me ask you about about this issue. With the uh, Israel versus Hamas war underway and uh, the international response, with the demonstrations and the support for Hamas, which is absolutely outrageous, we have significant numbers of Jewish Canadians, multi-generational Jewish Canadians, who are very, very much afraid. I'm going to be dealing with that in the next hour. Very much afraid, some of them thinking about leaving Canada for Israel, leaving their history in Canada behind. What do you say to the fact that Jewish Canadians in large numbers are so afraid because anti-Semitism is becoming such a such a, a weapon against them? I say that you're not alone. Uh, conservatives stand in solidarity with Jews who are under attack by the growing wave of anti-Semitism. Uh, Jews have the right to feel safe and at home here in Canada. People who disagree with decisions of the Israeli government should not take that disagreement out on their Jewish neighbors. They should hold peaceful protests and express their political opinions democratically. But to target Jewish households or businesses or to chant anti-Semitic slogans or cheer on Hamas is totally unacceptable, and, and I have condemned it. Would you agree that Israel has the right to do what it's doing as far as attempting to eradicate Hamas, given what happened in Israel on the 7th of October? Well, if you, if you don't defeat Hamas, then, then October 7th will just be repeated. Um, problem is right now that Hamas wants Palestinians to live in misery. Uh, the entire ideology of Hamas requires Palestinians to suffer. And by the way, they don't want a Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank. They want to obliterate Israel from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And they won't allow Palestinians to live, the Hamas will not allow Palestinians to live in peace or prosperity until that happens. So the only way to have peace and for Palestinians to have a state that they control independently is to defeat Hamas. Mr. Polyev, uh, tell us please what Canada's premiers, let's come back to the carbon tax for a moment, what Canada's premiers have been sharing with you because a significant number, I don't know how many, but at least, I think it's at least four, have spoken out very clearly that they do not agree with Mr. Trudeau's let's just carve out Atlantic Canada for a carbon tax break for three years. They uh, they stand more with the position that the carbon tax has to go, your position, the carbon tax has to go. What are you hearing from the premiers? What are they telling you? I just met with Premier Scott Moe today. I've talked with... Uh, Tim Houston and uh, indirectly through her teams, Danielle Smith. And they just agree with a simple principle, which is a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. So if you're going to take the tax off some home heat, you got to take it off all home heat. And that's why I brought forward my motion that gives all Canadians uh, a pause on carbon tax for their heat until the election when we can decide whether we want to elect Justin Trudeau and quadruple the tax or elect Pierre Polyev and axe the tax. And that's a fair position. And we'll, basically, the next election, we all agree now, is going to be a referendum on the carbon tax. 
and uh, the positions are clear. I'm I'm going to ask the tax. He's going to quadruple it. How did it happen that the NDP and Mr. Singh are going to vote with you and the Conservative Party on Monday? How did that happen? Well, it's a big flip-flop for the NDP because they have voted to quadruple the tax. They voted in favor of a 61 cent a liter carbon tax already. And But the problem is that their constituents are in revolt. Uh, I have uh, been to places like Timmins and Vancouver Island and elsewhere where they elected NDP. And now they're voting for, they're supporting Pierre Polyev's common sense conservatives in part because I'm the only one who will ax the tax to take the tax off and keep the heat on. Now NDPers are afraid for their political lives and they're flip-flopping and pretending to agree with me. But I don't care why they vote this way. The fact is they are. The motion has a good chance of passing and we want the prime minister to respect it. So, uh, you know that uh, eight of the markets in which I broadcast are in Western Canada, Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatoon, Calgary, Edmonton, Kelowna, um, Kamloops, and Vancouver. And Western Canadians really want to know that they're not going to be forgotten if you become the Prime Minister, not going to be sacrificed to area codes 416-905 and potentially 514 Montreal. What can you assure Western Canadians you will do as Prime Minister of this country that will satisfy the needs of Western Canadians and not make them feel like they've been excluded? Well, I'm a born and bred prairie boy. I grew up in Calgary. My folks are from Saskatchewan. So I understand the Western frustration. When I become Prime Minister, the era of Ottawa telling the West to pay up and shut up will be over for good. I will repeal the anti-resource law, C-69, so that we can produce more of our clean uh, and efficient oil, gas, uranium, potash, and countless other minerals. I will ax the carbon tax to bring home lower prices. I will lower the overall tax burden Ottawa imposes. I'll shrink the size and cost of the federal government so that local provincial governments have more room and money to govern on the local priorities of their people. Uh, That is the common sense approach to put Western Canadians back in charge of their lives in the freest country on earth. 40% of Canadians, I'm sure you saw this, Ipsos polling for RBC shows 40% of Canadians have trouble sleeping at night due to financial stress. You just made some promises, not just on this program, but you did. And you've made the promises across the country. 40% of us, four out of every 10 Canadians, if you're driving down the road or I'm driving down the road, we say, see 10 Canadians, four of them are losing sleep at night due to financial stress. You're going to relieve that stress? Yes. After eight years of Trudeau, everything costs more, work doesn't pay, and housing costs have doubled. Uh, This has led to people taking on monster mortgages. When Trudeau and the federal government flooded the economy with easy cash, people borrowed that cash, bid up home prices, and now are stuck with million-dollar mortgages. They're going to come come up for renewal at higher rates. And the deficits Trudeau runs today are actually inflating interest rates. So my common sense plan, caps spending, cuts waste to balance the budget and bring down inflation and interest rates before the $900 billion of mortgages come up for renewal over the next 
three years. If we don't do this, we will have mass bankruptcies that could threaten our entire financial system. The time is running out. It's why we need a new common sense government to balance the budget and bring down rates. Yeah, I won't keep you for more than a few more seconds, but we know from the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals in a release yesterday, um, Canadian business insolvencies in the third quarter, quarter rose to the highest level in 10 years, 41% climb, 41.8% actually, over the same quarter last year. That cannot be sustained. Mr. Poliev, I always appreciate the chance to talk. Uh, thanks very much for making the time today. Thanks very much, Mr. Green. Great to be with you. It's just common sense. Let's bring it home. We're going to talk now to a representative of the Israeli military. On the war with Hamas, the threat of a second front fighting Hezbollah to the north in Lebanon. And uh, we'll ask as well for a response to international protest claims that the IDF is engaging in war crimes. We just spent the last half hour talking about the anti-Semitic attitudes um, that exist in this country and the fear that Jewish Canadians are, are experiencing and some saying they're just going to leave this country. They're going to go and live in Israel because of their deep concerns for the safety of their children, of their families. And this is not something that can be tolerated. Joining us is Major Doron Spielman, spokesperson for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Major, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Would you uh, share with us, please, put some perspective to the actions that the IDF is taking now in Gaza? So, as we know, uh, now close to eight months since Hamas terrorists went over the border and uh, found almost no resistance, massacred Israeli civilians, and uh, left us with an inheritance which is horrible inheritance, over 1,400 people killed, and 241 additional people, including men, women, and children, little babies, still sitting in Gaza. And we, at that time, declared, as any, uh, I think, uh, rational country would do, declared war on Hamas, who continually have said that their goal is to destroy the state of Israel and tried to carry that on October 7th. Where we are right now is we have uh, we are operating in Gaza in combined forces, our ground forces, our aerial forces, intelligence, combat engineers, and trying to destabilize and eliminate Hamas's infrastructure that they are constantly trying to use again and again for further attacks, very similar to the of October 7th. And it is essentially operating in a jungle that they have set up in advance. They imagine a stage that they set up. They've put in that lots and lots of civilians that they've not allowed to leave. Booby traps, mines, they use schools and hospitals, mosques. Essentially, they have no rules of the game. And we are playing by rules. We're doing our best to kill the bad guys, which are the terrorists. And at the same time, little collateral damage. It's extremely difficult to the civilians of Gaza. But we are moving forward. We've covered well over 100 terror tunnels, which is what they've invested their their humanitarian aid funds in. And uh, we've killed many of their operatives, including their top commanders. But it's going to be a very difficult and long road. Uh, because, like I said, we're playing by different rules. 
Do you have a sense, uh, I, I want to be careful with what I say here because I, it's almost unimaginable, but do you believe the world has forgotten Israel's suffering and loss of life in the most brutal form imaginable to Hamas terrorists? Or are global demonstrators purely anti-Semitic and they would have taken to the streets regardless of the situation which may have presented itself to them? You know, I I think that every Israeli looking at the international news and and following these reports and seeing the hundreds of thousands of people that are somehow, uh, you know, protesting Israel and supporting Hamas. Like I I just saw, I was just looking at one of the international media outlets and I saw a massive Hamas rally. And in the background, there was a LGBTQ um, flag waving. I just saw this about 20 minutes ago. um, And I said to myself, do they have any idea who they are supporting? These are the people that if you are not exactly like them, they will kill you. And the same people that support uh, LGBTQ rights are, are, are supporting a regime that would kill those people without asking any questions. So I think in, in Israel, to answer your question, it's hard for us not to think the, that these people are anti-Semitic. But I think the alternative is, is that they have sadly fallen for the uh, bluff, the deception that Hamas has put out where they're parading around like they're a humanitarian organization when all they're doing is essentially killing Gazan civilians and, and have raped and murdered Israeli civilians. It, 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 I do think, you know, this is important for me to say that there is a line being drawn in the sand on this and that it will be remembered who are the people who that supported these killers. And as, as future will hold out, because we're only in the front line for Hamas. Hamas seeks to go all over the world, just like the Nazis uh, expanded. And those who supported the Nazis early on, that's never forgotten. And, and that's sad for me, because many of them uh, are, you know, essentially people who, who uh, one might consider to be rational, but in supporting them, they're going to go down in history with their own grand, great-grandchildren if they supported this murderous regime. Major Spielman, when international leaders call for a ceasefire or humanitarian pause in the attacks by Israel, how do you respond to that? What do you say? I mean, look, it's very, it's very simple. They were on the ground here, and they had a, a mass-murdering regime who not only mass-murdered 1,400 civilians, but constantly is continually saying that they're trying to carry out these attacks again, and we're, infl- and we're intercepting infiltration account- attempts on an almost daily basis, along with 8,000 rockets injured our civilians. What do we hope to achieve by enabling these people to regroup, replan, and attack again. I don't think anybody rational, if there was a mass murder outside of their front door, you know, just as they were about to catch them, would say to the police, no, no, let, let them go. You know, let them go. Well, we'll, we'll figure things out. No, uh, you know, Israel is not at all interested in doing anything right now but defeating Hamas. That is where we are focused because there's a very deep realization here, is that if we do not defeat Hamas right now, uh, these masks casualties will continue because that's what they say they're going to do. They've done it. And we're not going to give them a chance to do it again. Are you making meaningful progress finding and eliminating Hamas leadership and infrastructure? And uh, part of that question is when you do eliminate the leaders of Hamas and as many of their fighters as you can, doesn't that, doesn't the idea of the idea of Hamas survive anyway? 
To answer, I'll, I'll split the question into two. Uh, we are, in fact, making uh, very strong progress. It's coming at a, a great cost uh, of life on the Israeli side. I just got notification uh, about 15 minutes ago that a young groom, a uh, young boy uh, who his wedding was a month ago, lives literally across the street from my house. My wife just sent me. He was killed uh, in action. He's only been married for one month. We The whole community here is you know, devastated because this young boy, his wife's now a widow, you know, and she's in her early 20s. This is the cost of what it is for us to defend freedom, to defend uh, the state of Israel. And the men and women of this country of all ages are fully committed to doing it. And therefore, uh, our motivation is high and our professionalism is high. And we have Hamas right now on the run. In many, many locations, we've uncovered many of their tunnels. We've uncovered a lot of intelligence maps, data, armaments, and every day the picture gets more and more clear. Having said that, you know, Hamas, instead of using all that humanitarian aid for the last 16 years that they were in power to help the, the Arabs that are living in Gaza, the Gazans, they've been putting that into this, this network of tunnels that are hundreds of miles long. And they are down there, and it's not going to be a- easy to get them out of there, but it's going to take time and professionalism. And every day we are getting closer to that goal, but no one's under the illusion here that this is going to happen quickly. Uh, if, if the citizens of Gaza, Northern Gaza, that we have really almost begged to leave the front would head South, this would go much quicker. But I think the international community so focusing on Israel really needs to focus on Hamas and the war crimes to, you know, answer what I heard you mention your listeners are it is a war crime to prevent a civilian from leaving a battlefront. And that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, the second part of your question, uh, which is, will the Hamas ideology live on? Uh, it's obviously a great concern. Radical Islam is not something that exists only amongst Hamas. We can see it amongst Hezbollah, Iran. Uh, the Houthis in Yemen, all those who openly joined the foray are, are linked by a, an ideology, by a thunder who is Iran, a radical ideology. Uh, that is really, it's a cult of death. That's all it breeds. There's no, this wasn't about a peace deal. It was only about inflicting death. And I think there's always, uh, obviously, uh, a real fear that that could be. I, I think one of the ways, the best ways to combat this is not everybody in Gaza adheres to that cult of death. Many of the people living in Gaza are hostages to Hamas. Because uh, Hamas is a murderous regime, the leader of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar, is known, he's not a, he wasn't known as the butcher of Israel. He was known as the butcher of Beit Hanun because of his butchering of, of the Gazans in Gaza that he felt were collaborators with Israel. He's violent towards the own Gazans. If we are able, and we will, able to defeat Hamas and eliminate them both as a political organization and as a military organization, it hopefully will give a voice to those people. And I think that's the best, the best chance we have of beating that radical ideology. Now, what are your concerns? It's talked about a lot. Second front to the north from Lebanon involving Hezbollah. They're far more powerful than Hamas militarily. There's already been exchange of fire uh, between Israel and Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is threatening to become involved, in fact, is threatening the United States Navy in the Mediterranean. Well, what are the concerns about a second front, and how confident are you that the Americans would, in fact, take action if that were to take place? 
very concerned about Hezbollah as a second front. Uh, we've said that very openly from the very beginning. Uh, Hezbollah, like you said, they are, you know, kind of the, the best of all the terrorists in, in the world, the most organized. They've received funding and training from Iran for close to 30 years. Um, they are a seriously equipped army where Hamas has uh, around, had around 30,000 rockets. Hezbollah has hundreds of thousands of rockets all pointed at Israel. Uh, and we've said from the very beginning uh, that we're not looking to open a front. We were never, we have no, uh, we, we have no issue with Hezbollah. Hezbollah's, you know, very reason for existing. One of the reasons for existing is uh, to try to erase the state of Israel. Again, similar to Hamas in that respect. We are, our army is fully mobilized in the north. And we will respond to any threat. And if Hezbollah would try into this campaign, we would uh, take care of that threat completely. Having said that, we've advised them. The U.S. has said to them very clearly, do not get involved here. And ultimately speaking, we still relate to the government of Lebanon, the Lebanese people, and have said to them that it is certainly not in your best interest to place your faith in the hands of Hamas and in the, in the hands of Hezbollah. The little bit of, uh, of remaining you know, kind of official uh, land and control of the Lebanese government, Lebanese army, is uh, not something that they should invest in Hamas and Hezbollah, and we've warned them not to. Regarding the U.S., the U.S. has a lot of assets in the Middle East. They've moved in their two carrier fleets. I, I think, you know, that sends a strong enough message to all of these regimes. They're a great ally, and uh, I'm sure that they will act on their national interests and, and, um, we're united together in making sure that this terrorism uh, doesn't spread. Dr. Christian Luprecht is my guest. We are very grateful to, uh, to him for his participation on this program on a regular basis. Class of 1965, distinguished professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Military Journal, a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, also directs the Institute of Intergovernment Relations at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, and his latest books include Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press, and Polar Cousins. This is a really big one. Polar Cousins, Comparison and Arctic and Arctic Geostrategic Futures. Big deal for this country. And are we ready? We'll talk about that another time, or maybe this time. Christian, thank you very much, and I'm so sorry for having sort of not been sure about exactly when we'd get you on the air until about 15 minutes ago. Roy, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. You're so gracious. Thank you very much. Let's start with the Israel-Hamas war. How do you assess, and you're the, uh, you're the expert when it comes to international security and uh, geopolitical matters, military matters, how do you assess how this war is going? What is of greatest interest to you? What is of greatest concern to you? So I think you're starting with the right premise, that this is a war between Hamas and the state of Israel. And my concern is in the public conversation, we've confounded that with the broader aspects of the dynamics of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians as a people. And so I think uh, we need to make sure we focus on the war aspect, because when you listen to 
what some of the politicians are talking about and some of the folks who are traveling through the Middle East to try to bring some calm, they're conflating the broader dynamics of the conflict with the immediate and pressing concerns around this war. And of course, it is the war that is currently causing the greatest human calamity, but it's also emblematic of the problems in the Middle East, which is that once a war starts in the Middle East, it is very difficult to stop. And that's, you know, we should be taking away from at least the last 20 plus years. But really, anybody who studies the history of the Middle East understands those dynamics. And so the hope in the West that this will come to a quick resolution, uh, I fear, may be misplaced. And if you can see the way Everybody from the U.S. Secretary of State to uh, the Turkish president um, are now trying to uh, find some arrangement in the Middle East. It shows you that the collective action problems are huge because there are so many stakeholders involved, including external stakeholders, and the transaction costs to do anything are very high. And if you want to see those transaction costs at work, just look at the Rafa crossing and how difficult it is to get anyone or anything across, which is a microcosm of the complexity of trying to get people to find some common denominator in this conflict. So it's Israel-Hamas at war, the Israeli military in Gaza. We're seeing the results of that. The Israelis are absolutely unapologetic about it. Their determination is to absolutely destroy Hamas. And that is bringing now Hezbollah into the picture as well, to the north of Israel and southern Lebanon. They're much bigger, much more powerful than Hamas, and they're threatening to get involved. And they're saying... The uh, Hezbollah leader has said, not too terribly concerned about the American Navy, which is massed on the coast, on the Mediterranean, saying, we have uh, ways to deal with you. I don't know how they would deal with two U.S. carrier task forces, but good luck to them on that. But how do you assess the potential of this becoming now a two-front war? Well, so look, we're already looking at more than a two-front war. So... Um, talking about Hamas is not technically entirely accurate when we're talking about the war. The war is being uh, being conducted uh, by the militant arm of Hamas, which is the Al-Qassam uh, Al Brigades uh, and the Al-Quds Brigade, uh, the militant arm of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. There are several militant groups that operate in the Gaza Strip, and they are now sort of some of them they're sometimes at odds with one another, but of course, now that they have a common enemy as they see it in this conflict, they're coordinating with one another. You also see um, an increasing number of militant attacks on various sides in the West Bank. Um, we now see anti-aircraft systems being transferred from Syria into Lebanon, uh, supposedly in support of Hamas. And we've also now had um, Iranian-backed militias from Iraq uh, for the first time claiming to have conducted two operations inside Israel. Uh, so the conflict, uh, certainly um, Iran and the militias that it supports uh, are signaling that they have the intent and capability to um, uh, make this, uh, this, this conflict spread. And so this is probably Iran's effort to try to um, signal that um, no 
stability can be found without uh, Iran at the table. And of course, nobody in the West is too interested in talking to Iran as a power broker. So you can see how uh, this is becoming rather difficult. And little Qatar is finding itself in this mediating role uh, between Israel uh, and the Hamas leadership. Uh, so yes, like everything in the Middle East, it's complicated. So two weeks ago on this program, you warned that this is the most dangerous time the world has experienced in decades. No reason to change that uh, that view, I imagine. Well, to the contrary. Look, I mean, if you're China and you're looking at what's going on, you're hoping that the United States is going to get embroiled in some ways in this conflict in the Middle East, perhaps going back to the 1980s with U.S. Marines in Lebanon. Um, and you're looking at what's happening in Ukraine, uh, with less attention being paid to Ukraine. Russia, of course, is now doubling down on its uh, industrial, military industrial capacity. And look, regardless of how Ukraine ends, Russia is not going to wind down its uh, military machine and it's uh, that it's now cranked up uh, for a sustained uh, war in Ukraine. And you can bet that uh, however Ukraine is sort of resolved um, that uh, six to 10 years after, Russia is going to um, double down and is likely going to attack uh, uh, NATO territory in the Baltics. Um, so I would say that anywhere between the next six months to the next six to 10 years, we're going to find ourselves in a major global conflict. Uh, and the problem is, of course, that uh, we need to be actively engaged to avoid precisely that eventuality. And yet what we see from many countries in the West, uh, led by our own federal government, is putting the Head, putting our head in the sand and pretending that all these problems will just somehow miraculously go away, as opposed to trying to learn the hard lessons from uh, the first half of the 20th century and actually trying to be an active player to prevent what I see is going to be a very difficult decade ahead. Okay, so let's look at internally, Canada internally. What's the greatest issue of concern to you in this country today? And and viscerally for me, I don't know where this factors in with you, but viscerally for me, it's the fear Canada's Jewish population is living with now. Uh, with many, and we'll be talking about this specifically a little later in the program today and again tomorrow. But I'm hearing uh, from Jewish Canadians saying, maybe it's time to just sell everything, leave the country I was born in, and move to Israel. Where does the, the, the concern and the fear of anti-Semitism fit into the overall dynamic in this country? Well, what we need from the federal government is a very clear articulation of that any expressions of sympathies with violent extremism or extremist violence in as diverse a society as Canada are completely unacceptable. And they're as equally unacceptable as federal, MP, uh, federal MPs dog whistling to various extremist sort of sympathies and sympathizers in this country because they think that they want to get their votes in the next election. And so this, uh, this is a playing with fire sort of approach of trying to keep various sort of constituencies happy rather than drawing a clear red line when it comes to any articulation or expression of uh, extremist violence or violent extremism. Um, and that, of course, includes uh, includes hate crimes. And the leadership has to come from the political level rather than pretending that this is simply a law enforcement problem. The greatest threat that faces this country is the greatest threat this country has always faced, which is disintegration. Uh, 
This is not a natural country. Look at its geography. Look at its division in terms of religion, ethnicity, uh, language groups. Uh, that this is a country that has been actively built politically and that requires politics to keep it together. And I fear that on the one hand, there is significant ignorance federally about the risks of disintegration to the federation. Um, and there is, uh, I think, to some extent, also fanning the flames of polarization for boutique electoral gain that is ripping that that risks ripping this country apart and you know in the in in sort of what uh what people in the west would call central canada ontario quebec uh the view sort of towards the west that somehow uh the west is sort of uh not not playing game with central canada of course you can turn that around and say if you're looking at western canada you feel that ontario and quebec have never really played uh, uh played fairly uh, with Western Canada. And traditionally, astute federal politicians have done the opposite of what we're currently seeing, which is trying to make sure we bring this country together. And look, the greatest risk to disintegration has always come from foreign policy. Look at the conscription crisis um, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and I fear between what is happening domestically and what is happening internationally, uh, that is only going to co uh, cause the rifts in this country to uh, widen. So as you look at uh, another issue which is really captivating Canadians, and that is the issue of the carbon tax, and Mr. Trudeau saying for three years he will shelf, he will park the carbon tax on home heating oil, and particularly that affects Atlantic Canada. His his aim, his his his, his desire, is to secure as many of the thirty-two seats of Atlantic Canada as he possibly can, and he's always done, and the Liberals have always done very well there. This time. They are in significant trouble. Is this carbon tax issue, when you look at the, the rest of the country and the premiers that are involved, and I'll be speaking with Mr. Polyev about this, is this carbon tax issue one which could, in fact, create a national unity crisis, or has it already done that? The challenge here is that we've had politicians that are governing by polls and by boutique electoral interests rather than in the national interest, putting the interests of particular political parties ahead of that of the country. Um, and uh, this is what we see ultimately on full display. And what this country needs is principled leadership that ultimately articulates a national interest and pursues a national interest. And until we find that, I fear that this country will continue to drift further apart and that the credibility and reputation of the federal government with voters in particular in areas that have already traditionally had the feeling that the federal government doesn't care all that much about them and their priorities will continue to feel further alienated. Uh, so, you know, uh, federal leadership ultimately needs to bring this country together uh, rather than uh, uh, doubling down on dividing the country. Let me say hello to our guest. And he's a great favorite of this program, a great friend of this program, Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Professor Cam, how are you doing? Well, thank you. And I would just uh, technically like to wish you a good Saturday afternoon. Well, technically, right back at you. Thank you so very I, much. I want to play something for you. It's something that I have kept since it actually happened. And, you know, they've got the uh, the premiers all meeting. What do they call it? The uh, something of the Federation. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not the meeting of the Federation. Anyway, it's the premier's meeting, and the prime minister usually participates. 
So I was uh, I was watching the very first one that involved the carbon tax when Mr. Trudeau was introducing it, and he was explaining what the carbon tax would in fact mean, and that took then Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall by surprise, and Mr. Wall that I thought this has always been very memorable. Mr. Wall had a question for Mr. Trudeau. It's less than a minute. Dr. Cam, let's have a listen. Play it, please. Well, the, the fact is that any revenue collected in the provinces will be returned to those provinces, and uh, the premiers uh, can uh, give uh, bonuses to farmers, can give rebates to farmers, can uh, address the concerns of their population uh, whichever way uh, they see uh, fit. I think it's extremely important that the federal government recognize the need for this flexibility, uh, and uh, that's why the fact that the revenue Revenue uh, from uh, the price on carbon pollution will stay uh, within uh, their uh, within the jurisdiction in which it's collected, and uh, the way it is returned to citizens will be determined uh, by the people who serve them directly, their premiers. So, I could, if I could give all the money back to the American <coughs> he's paid in carbon taxes or she's paid in carbon taxes, what's the point? How does that change behavior? I guess that's the other concern we have. So there's Mr. Trudeau explaining that the carbon tax is going to be collected, but it'll remain in the jurisdictions in which it's collected, and then it's up to the premier to return it to the people who it was collected from. And Mr. Wall quite appropriately said, what's the point? And I always thought that's one of the best political questions I've heard and one of the most useful and timely relevant questions I've heard and uh, it really caught Mr. Trudeau on the back foot. And he's been on the back foot as far as the carbon tax is concerned. And Canadian popular opinion is concerned, I believe, since then. So, uh, Dr. Cam, what do, you make, what do you make of that exchange? Well, I think it was um, idiocracy in its purest form. Idiocracy. Um, I love it. But, but I'll tell you what makes me really sad about it is that I'm afraid that the prime minister actually believes his own garbage. And what I mean by that is he can say, uh, and anybody can say that this is a, not a bad idea because you take it away and then you give it back. So not only is that a complete and utter waste of time, but all that really does, because we know darn well that they're not giving back, they're giving back such a small percentage of what they're taking, that all it really does when you ask about how does this change anything, how does this change behavior, is that this is just one more Trudeau act that makes the people of Canada less wealthy, that just reduces their disposable income, reduces their wealth, reduces their ability to buy food and pay their rent. So first of all, anybody who believes that he was going to take a dollar out and put a dollar back, I mean, wake up. That's just never going to happen. That's never happened in the history of taxation in this country. But also, you know, you hang that on regular, hardworking Canadians. And I wonder if he realizes that that policy truly, truly is a regressive, horrible way of making people poorer. He's just trying to sell it by, as they say, putting a brand new dress. Uh, I don't even want to tell you how that expression ends, but it's a terrible policy. Somebody this week finally figured it out when they really got mad and said, we have got to get rid of the carbon tax. Even if you don't want to call it, Mr. Prime Minister, if you don't want to call it a scrapping, then at least call it a moratorium and stop it. 
Because as I'm sure you're going to want to ask me, Roy, what are we heading into now? There's no technical recession. That is what academics say when they want to leave themselves and out. We are in a recession. Every macroeconomic indicator in this country is moving downward if it's not negative already. So the time to get rid of regressive taxes like the carbon tax and maybe give people a chance to support their families is yesterday, Roy. Yeah, you know, I keep going back to this number, and uh, these are numbers that actually came up this week. And I've mentioned them a few times today, but they're extremely relevant. I mentioned them to Mr. Polyev. I mentioned them to our callers, and they referenced them as well. So Ipsos for RBC did polling on how comfortable Canadians are. I, I use the word comfortable. That's my word as far as their financial situation is concerned. 40% of Canadians have trouble sleeping at night due to financial stress. 40%, as I said to Mr. Polyev, drive down the road, I'll drive down the road with you, and four of every 10 people we see is losing sleep because of financial stress. At the same time, the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals revealed the number of Canadian business insolvencies in the third quarter rose to the highest level in 10 years, and it's up 41.8% over the same quarter of last year. So you have business insolvencies up 41.8% over the same quarter last year, and you have 40% of Canadians losing sleep at night due to financial stress. And I've got Trudeau telling me, just keep paying the carbon tax. Okay, first of all, we know darn well that that 40% is grossly, grossly being underreported. It's way more than that. And, you know, we could talk about numbers all day. I'm an economist, so let's just throw out another one. I heard Trudeau this week say that Canada is adding an average of 40,000 new jobs each month in 2023. And I heard his cast of cronies behind him clapping when they said that. But now dig a little bit like economists are supposed to and give people real numbers. In each of those months, Roy, the working age population grew by 78,000, almost twice the average increase in employment. So that means first eight months of 2023, we added 320,000 jobs and added 624,000 people looking for jobs. And that is only half the story because immigration is outpacing employment growth for several years now. So we're in absurd disparities when it comes to what is available for Canadians versus the number of Canadians looking for work. Our GDP is plunging. As I say, I'm being repetitive. Our indicators are plunging. How about a couple more numbers before we go, Roy? Rents climbing 11% per year. 11%. So with immigration well on track to hit 1.1 million this year, that means that each day, Canada is yielding an average of 3,000 new people into a real estate market that nobody can afford to rent or own. Where are you going? <laughs> where are you going? That's an excellent question. No, no, you said, you said before we go, where are you going? Oh, no, I just meant that uh, before we move on to whatever the next thing, because I can oh, okay. be, be verbose and go on, is that this is really, I mean, if you take a snapshot of the Canadian economy right now, what is there to brag about? And you see, this is the, when people say to me, I know you support Mr. Polyev in the next election, I say because he's the only person making any sense whatsoever. Mr. Trudeau has completely lost the plot. 
either that or he just is is pretending that he's in fantasy land because there is nothing today in the Canadian economy other than the fact that it hasn't collapsed that shows us any type of a reason for optimism. So 40%, Roy, I'll bet it's a whole lot more than that who are losing sleep. If you have a mortgage, if you pay rent, if you buy gas, and if you buy food at a grocery store, trust me, you're losing sleep. You remember it was about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, where I thought I had a little bit of a, not a joke, it wasn't a joke, but I it was a little bit of a um, play on words or... I'm not quite sure how to describe it. You you know you can do that better than I. But I said the inflation reality today means this. It's when Canadians stop at the gas station and the grocery store on the same morning and cannot afford to fill up at either. And at the time it wasn't that bad. People could in fact, many people could in fact fill up their cars and their grocery carts at the same time, or at least in the same morning. But today, and I've made it a point, Dr. Cam, to talk to people. That's what I do. I've made it a point to talk to people away from the microphone and said to them, how are you managing? And the, the news, the replies are exactly that. Can't afford things anymore. When I go on the air and I ask people, can you share with us particularly what your greatest challenges are? Because you and I know 52% of Canadians are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. When I ask them a question in private or ask a question on the air, people are very willing to come on the air and explain what their realities are, what their challenges are, and what their fears are. And fear is number one on the list. And what made your comment, like you said, you know, it wasn't that bad. You were right. And I'll tell you what made it not that bad is that at the time we said, well, thank heaven, people still tend to be having their jobs because the job market was still fairly stable. But it was you and I about 18 months ago who said, if heaven forbid the bottom ever falls out of the labor market and these inflationary pressures start to go through the labor market and we start to see decreases in the number of available jobs, that's when the rubber is really going to hit the road in terms of economic disaster. It's all fun and games when you have a job. You can adjust your consumption and your savings when you have income coming in. But when you don't, then your back is against the wall. And unfortunately, Roy, all of the numbers tell us now is that is coming to fruition. And it is the labor market is the next market that's going to have profound problems in this country. And so in a way, and I mean this with all tongue in cheek, if people think that it's been fun and games up till now, when we start to see unemployment figures go up into double digits, there's going to be nobody laughing. You know, uh, there's, a, there's an exit ramp uh, from a, a major street. I live in Burlington, Ontario. So there's, a, there's an exit ramp off this major street that goes down onto, um, onto a service road of the Queen Elizabeth Way, major highway. And uh, there's a, there are guardrails that sell, separate the exit ramp going down to the service road and the service road entrance from the highway heading in the opposite direction. I hope you can visualize this. And at the, at the intersection itself, where these two um, guardrails meet, 
one going down, one coming up for opposing traffic, there's a little space, and I would venture 30, 40 feet maybe, maybe at its widest, 10 or 12 feet, and there are four tents, four tents erected in that little space, and people are living there. Why are they living there? Because they can't afford rent. They can't afford mortgage. And they feel, because of the location, this is my surmising, they feel there's a degree of personal safety there, because to get at them would be extremely difficult, given the geographic realities. And I look at this and I think, this is so fundamentally wrong. We Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of vehicles drive past this little four-tent encampment each and every day, and these people, human beings, our fellow Canadians, are living in such a stressed, uh, desperate environment. It, it breaks my heart when I, when I drive by. I'd like to stop and give them some money. I'm one of these people who actually does give some money to people on street corners who have a cardboard sign that says, help, I need help. I do it. Um, I, but I can't because traffic is moving so fast. This, to me, is the metaphor for what's happening in, in Canada. That small, that microcosmic reality, Dr. Cam, is the metaphor for what's going on in this country. And my wife is born and raised in Burlington, so I know exactly where you're talking about. And you're really right about your analogy. It is an episode in what happens. People often say, why is government so important? Well, a little bit like umpires in baseball, because you're not supposed to see them. They're supposed to operate in the background. But this is what happens when governments and banks of Canada and people in decision-making roles make terrible, terrible, life-altering decisions for consumers and investors. You leave your country in a perilous state. And it is time now, it is time now to rectify it before it is too late. We need subsidies in the housing industry, subsidies in the rental industry. We need to get rid of taxes like the carbon tax, but other discretionary regressive taxes that prey on the lower and middle class. Unfortunately, now that I've said that, I think I'm screaming in the wind because I see nothing that tells me that my, my prime minister is listening to anybody. And the only person who seems to get it is the leader of the opposition. And so when people say, I can't believe Mr. Polyev is so far ahead in public opinion polls, I can, because he's the only person speaking to those people, Roy, that are, God forbid, living in tents right now, saying, is there anybody who can help me because my prime minister has dropped the proverbial ball? Yeah, it is, uh, it is absolutely heartbreaking. And uh, defining just how non-seriously government takes this issue is Goody Hutchings, the Liberal Party cabinet minister, who stated that if Saskatchewan and Alberta would like a policy benefit similar to what was offered to Atlantic Canada as far as the carbon tax is concerned, then Saskatchewan and Alberta should elect more federal liberals. Close the book right there. Dr. Cam, thank you so much. Always, always appreciate speaking with you. Always. It's always my honor, Roy. Stay healthy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.